This is Strange Assembly episode 271, the top 10 board games of the 2010s. I'm Chris Stevenson, and this is Strange Assembly, your tabletop gaming podcast. As you could tell from the title, the topic today is the best, aka my favorite, 10 board games of the last 10 years. Tabletop games have become a huge, huge thing over the last 10 years, and with the digits on the calendar about to click away from the 2010s to the 2020s, I figured it was a great time to look back at my favorite games over that last 10 years. But before I dive into the list, you can find more of our work at www.strangeassembly.com. And if you could take the time to give this podcast a rating or review on iTunes, that would be extremely appreciated. Now, onto the list. Number 10, Splendor, designed by Mark Andre and published in 2014 by Space Cowboys. I've got a lot of heavier games in my collection, but Splendor is going to kick off something of a theme of the first part of this list. Sometimes, elegance is king. Splendor is pure engine building. Players start the game with nothing, taking a few turns to collect gems of five colors in the form of really nice poker chips. The poker chips are used to buy cards. Conceptually, these are, you know, gem mines and each of those cards permanently contributes a gem of a given color to every future purchase. This makes it cheaper and faster to buy the second card, which makes it cheaper and faster to buy the third card, and so on until you're buying somewhat more expensive cards that are also worth victory points, and then much more expensive cards that are worth even more victory points. There's a strategy to what you buy and when, so there's a solid game here, but it's also very easy to learn. To use some gaming jargon, all of Splendor's complexity is emergent rather than on the board. That means that if you're learning, you look at the board and you can keep track of what's going on and quickly make rational decisions. When you know the game well enough, then you can start to see the deeper strategies and plan further out. It's a fantastic design and my number 10 game of the decade. Number 9, Love Letter. Designed by Seiji Kanai, first published in Japanese by Kanai Factory, and published in English in 2012 by Alderac Entertainment Group, though it's currently published by Plaid Hat Games. Love Letter is, by far, the smallest game on this list. Although fancier editions have been released, the heart of Love Letter is just 16 cards. It is a game you can literally carry in your pocket, and you can actually play while standing in line or while sitting in a restaurant waiting for dinner to be served. You have one card, and on each turn you draw one card and then play one of those two cards. The game is based around trying to figure out what cards other players are holding and then using that information to eliminate them, or possibly actually getting to the end of the deck and then having the highest value card. The English language version has you playing multiple rounds to a certain number of wins, but the original iteration was even more stripped down. One hand, and that's the game. Love Letter has been repeatedly rethemed, so you can get things like Batman Love Letter or The Hobbit Love Letter, 
but my personal favorite version is still the first English language edition from AEG, featuring art from their ill-fated Tempest shared world. But regardless of the version, Love Letter is a brilliant little deduction game, and it single-handedly kicked off a craze for microgames. Oh, and spoiler alert. I think that 2012 was the single best year for board games so far, so Love Letter's probably not going to be the only game from that year on this list. Number 8. Codenames. Designed by Vlada Khvatel, published in 2015 by Czech Games Edition. Party games are often working in a very different space from your typical strategy board game, and don't often get a lot of attention from your serious board game types. Strange Assembly included. But when you take one of the world's top strategy game designers and he makes a party game? In this case, the result is Codenames, the single best party game from the 2010s. In Codenames, players split into two teams, with one player giving clues and the rest of the team trying to ascertain their meaning. The two teams play across a grid of cards, each card with a single word printed on it. Certain cards belong to each team, but only the clue givers know which cards these are. On a team's turn, the clue giver provides a clue consisting of a single word and a single number. Based on that clue, the rest of the team then picks cards from the grid that they think the clue is linked to. The number is how many cards the clue giver is trying to represent. The first team to identify all of their cards wins. Now, it's pretty easy to give a clue that's tied to just one card, but it's a lot more challenging to come up with a word that will be a clue for three different cards belonging to your team while avoiding the identification of any of the other team's cards. Codenames plays best with at least three players on each team, so that the guessing part of the team has at least two players to discuss the meaning of the clue. After all, Half the fun of games like this is seeing how wildly off-course your team manages to go with your clues. And it's actually kind of important to listen to what your teammates are saying, because that's probably going to inform the next clue that you give on your next turn. That's Codenames from CGE. Number 7, Lords of Waterdeep, designed by Peter Lee and Rodney Thompson, published in 2012 by Wizards of the Coast. Lords of Waterdeep got an extra leg up in getting attention because of its Dungeons and Dragons branding, but it kept that attention because of excellent gameplay. Lords of Waterdeep is an optimal first worker placement game, a mechanic I am very fond of. Lords of Waterdeep is far from the first game to use this mechanic, or else it would be ineligible for this list, and it isn't the simplest but it's both fairly straightforward and still has rich gameplay. In a worker placement game, such as Lords of Waterdeep, each player has a certain number of pawns, or workers, and takes turn assigning these workers to various spots on the board to generate various effects. The primary means of player interaction typically comes from getting blocked out of actions and how you react to that. In Lords of Waterdeep, the players are the various masked lords of the city of Waterdeep, and the workers are their agents, recruiting D&D stalwarts like wizards, fighters, clerics, and rogues, then sending those adventurers on missions around and beneath the city. In purely mechanical terms, 
you're gathering resources, then spending those resources for even more resources or for victory points. The board starts with a standardized set of action spaces. They're all named after locations in Waterdeep, although you probably won't remember what those names are. I certainly don't. But the available spaces will expand as players construct new buildings from a randomized selection. There's also a stack of intrigue cards that primarily use a two-step location. You play the card immediately when you assign your worker, then you get to reassign elsewhere later, to a much reduced set of locations, of course. The strategy in Lords of Waterdeep is never willing to go up to the next level. It's mostly about realizing which missions and locations are the most efficient, and then playing for the long game, but the level that it's at is very satisfying. I will say that, while there isn't really strong theming in Lords of Waterdeep, you can help that with one of the niftiest third-party upgrades out there, which replaces the cubes in the game with uh, what, what one might call D&Dples, little figures of those wizards, fighters, rogues, and clerics. You can get this at uh, Meeple Source. There's some on Etsy also. None of this changes the gameplay, but just having those little figures makes it feel a lot more like sending adventurers on a mission. Now, an upgrade like this is probably going to cost as much as the base game, plus the Scoundrels of Skullport expansion put together. So it's a luxury item, but, but it's still very cool. But the game works great as is. That's Lords of Waterdeep, published in 2012 by Wizards of the Coast. Number six, Star Realms, designed by Rob Doherty and Darwin Castle and published in 2014 by White Wizard Games. When I first considered making this list, I wasn't sure how I was going to handle deck-building games. The central mechanic of deck-building games is that you start with a small deck of relatively lousy cards, then cycle through that deck over a series of usually pretty quick turns, improving the deck each turn by acquiring new cards and getting rid of old ones. And I love deck-building games. But I wasn't sure where to go for purposes of this list. Should I pick Don Vaccarino's Dominion, which essentially invented the genre? Or should I go with something more refined? Then I realized that Dominion didn't come out in the 2010s, which both made me feel old and made this decision much easier. Dominion created the deck-building genre. Thunderstone added the concept of deck-building with a purpose. Stoneblade Entertainment's Ascension innovated by switching new card acquisition from static stacks that each contained multiple copies of the same card to a single row fed by a single deck with an ever-changing variety of cards available. Star Realms added direct player conflict as the focus of the game, along with a quick playtime, a small footprint, and a low price point. Each player's starting deck consists of cards that either produce a single resource for buying other cards or a single point of attack. New cards from that single deck are in one of four factions represented by border colors. Each faction has certain aspects of the game that it's better at. Dealing damage, getting bad cards out of your deck, card cycling, that sort of thing. Side note, yes, this game was designed by Magic the Gathering players. And in general, you're rewarded for focusing on certain factions because many of the faction cards have ally abilities that trigger if you've played another card from that faction. Most cards are played and discarded as normal, but there are also bases that stay in play. They have P 
repeated effects and can include defending the player from damage. Games are quick, allowing repeated play. Evaluation of cards in isolation and together is important. It's necessary to gauge when it's time to switch from any sort of deck improvement to just pounding your opponent, including when to start using card abilities that will remove those new good cards from your deck. There are a stack of expansions at this point to add greater card variety, but Star Realms is wonderful right out of the box. I could make a video featuring just my favorite deck building games, but if I'm going to single out the very best one from the 2010s, it's still Star Realms. Number 5. Viticulture, designed by Jamie Stegmeier and Alan Stone, first published in 2013 by Stonemeyer Games. With Viticulture, it's time to move the second half of this list a bit higher up the weight scale. Games that are more complex, but are that much more rewarding. Viticulture is a game of strategic winemaking. Players will raise money, give vineyard tours, build structures, and host helpful guests. But the core mechanical cycle is planting vines, harvesting grapes, making wine, and then filling orders to improve your vineyard's reputation. That is, earning victory points. Like Lords of Waterdeep, Viticulture is a worker placement game. Over the course of the year, workers will perform the various actions I've mentioned. Turn order takes on a significant role, because it doesn't just matter that you get to take an action, but when you get to take it. Players can go straight for wine-producing capacity, or they might take time to build out a support structure, such as windmills, cottages, or tasting rooms that generate rewards for activities other than making wine, or that make the process of making wine more rewarding once it gets going. Visitor cards spice up the action, giving opportunities like an expert builder who can reduce structure costs, or an expert horticulturist who can let you plant an otherwise impossibly impressive field. Note that if you're going to pick up a copy of Viticulture, you probably want to look for the Viticulture Essential Edition, which was published in 2015. The first edition of Viticulture could be fairly punishing, with money in short supply and it being fairly easy to get blocked out of vital actions. The game was adjusted in small ways that had a big impact in the second edition, opening up the gameplay. The Essential Edition has those revised rules and the best parts of the Tuscany expansion. I've personally got the big old Collector's Edition set, but we use maybe one of the additional modules that isn't in the Essential Edition, so that Essential Edition is going to deliver everything you need. That's Viticulture from Stonemeyer Games. Number four, Zulkin, the Mayan Calendar, designed by Simone Luciani and Danielle Tascani, published by CGE in 2012. I know there are a lot of gamers who would argue that Zulkin isn't even the best medium-heavy, Euro-style game published in 2012 whose title starts with the letter T. And don't get me wrong, Terra Mystica is a great game. But to me, Zulkin is just amazing. And perhaps it's fitting that my favorite game from 2012 has a theme that's tied to the year of release. Remember that whole, the Mayans predicted the world was going to end in 2012 thing? If you don't, you're lucky. It was a waste of time. But Zulkin most certainly is not. Zulkin is another worker placement game. But the main thing you'd want to know is that you're placing those workers on a series of interlocking gears, which are then rotated between turns, shifting the positions of the workers. It's just gorgeous to look at. 
Zolkin's worker placement is significantly more complex than that of Lords of Waterdeep or Viticulture. On each turn, you either place one or more workers, or you pick up one or more workers. And you don't take the action until you pick up the worker, rather than when you put them down. So the longer the worker is out, the further up the gear this will take them, and the more powerful the action will be. So instead of just playing one worker a turn, you've always got to be figuring out how many turns until you'll be picking up. And when you play your workers, you have to determine how many workers to put out, because the cost of placement escalate as the number of workers increases. And when you pick up, you have to figure out whether or not to pick up everyone, or to let some of the workers continue to ride the gears. Oh, and in all of this, you might want to consider the effect that your placement, or pickup, will have on the next player's options. But wait, there's more. What's the point of all these actions? Well, there's another layer of considerations depending on the gear. Of course, some of the actions are going to be to generate the basic resources you need to keep placing workers, but that alone would not be much of a purpose. On other gears, there's engine building from advancing technology tracks, and most points are ultimately going to be scored by using actions to advance up various temple tracks representing devotion to the Mayan gods, using crystal skulls, or building expensive wonders. It's a lot of cool stuff going on, but I really do think that the standout greatness of Zulkin is also due to that gear mechanism. It just would not be the same game if it was just yet another set of tracks to move workers up as the game progressed. It would be a good game, still, but, but not one that's in my top 10. I'm not sure if the gears were part of the original design, or some production guru came up with it later, but regardless, it's that extra edge to get CGE their second spot on this list. Number 3. Pandemic Legacy Season 1, designed by Matt Leacock and Rob Daviau, published by Z-Man Games in 2015. Two major trends in board games in recent years have been more use of story and more of what I call consumable games, and Pandemic Legacy is an exemplar of both of those trends. There's an assumption with more traditional board games that they can be played an indefinite number of times. That often doesn't happen with the modern designer board game market, where many players, myself included, are frequently flitting on to the next thing. But that notion of, of the game being able to be theoretically played an indefinite number of times is usually still out there. Consumable games step outside that paradigm. They're games that you can play a certain number of times, maybe only once, and then they're done. Now, this isn't brand new. 221B Baker Street was released in 1975, and because it involves solving mysteries, each case can effectively be played only once. Legacy games, a genre named after Pandemic Legacy, go a bit further, requiring physical modification or destruction of game components. With a game like Pandemic Legacy, there is no going back. And this freedom allows Pandemic Legacy to do great things with gameplay and with storytelling. Taking from 12 to 24 individual games, Pandemic Legacy invites you to sit down with the same group of players and play through an extended story that will unfold through hidden cards, secret compartments, and lots and lots of stickers. Like traditional Pandemic, 
Pandemic Legacy is a fully cooperative game where the players are attempting to stop the spread of a variety of diseases. In Pandemic Legacy, their successes or failures in earlier games will affect how the board starts in later games. The roles used by the players may gain benefits in working together, or those characters, who are now specific named people instead of generic representations, may be injured and become less effective. There's a plot arc as information is revealed, including a couple of big twists in the narrative. Playing through Pandemic Legacy with a fun group of people is a wonderful experience that really elevates it from just being a game to being both a great game and something more. I think that that's something telling about what you can do with a quote-unquote consumable game. Pandemic Legacy is, in theory, something that's less lasting than a copy of, say, Through the Ages. But Pandemic Legacy doesn't permit you to just play one game and then leave it to sit on your shelf. It has to be played through the whole thing to get the full force of the experience, and it is well, well worth that commitment. Number two, Seven Wonders, designed by Antoine Bauza, published by Repos Productions in 2010. There's a lot that could be said about Seven Wonders, but the biggest selling point is that it's a good game that doesn't get worse and doesn't get longer when you add more players. For a lot of Euro-style games, there is a sweet spot with three or four players. Many of these games will technically support five or maybe six players, but the addition of more players usually comes at the cost of a longer playtime, more downtime between turns, or both. This is the sort of thing that comes up when you've got a group of five or six players and you need something to play that doesn't split the group. Seven Wonders circumvents this issue by using card drafting as its core mechanic, keeping everything simultaneous, and confining the interaction to only players to your immediate left and right. Seven Wonders, which plays up to seven players, is played over three ages, with players starting each age with a hand of seven cards. Altogether, everyone picks a single card out of their hand, and then altogether everyone flips their card over and plays it. Cards might be worth victory points, they might generate cash, they might give you military power, or they might provide basic resources needed for later cards. Then, everyone passes the remaining six cards in their hand to the left. Then the process repeats. Everyone picks one of those six cards. Everyone plays that one of their six cards. And you repeat until everyone has played a total of six cards. You toss the seventh card into the scrap heap. The age is over. At the end of the age, you look to your left and you look to your right and you gain or lose points based on how your military strength compares to your immediate neighbors. But just to your immediate neighbors. You don't have to look across the table to see what the other you know, four people in the game are doing. Then you do all that for two more ages. Of course, the effects escalate as the game goes on, and there's strategy in what to draft and when to draft it, but that central mechanic means that everything keeps moving. Once everyone has played Seven Wonders once and knows the symbology on the cards, games can be wrapped up in half an hour. That is something close to miraculous in a game with five-plus players that is an actual strategy game. It is just a brilliant design. And if there's only two of you, which is a player count that Seven Wonders does not really support, you can even check out Seven Wonders Duel, which some people would say is even better than the original. Number one, Mansions of Madness, original design by Corey 
Kinezka, published in 2011 by Fantasy Flight Games. Second edition designed by Nikki Valens, published in 2016, also by Fantasy Flight Games. Mansions of Madness is a story-driven, cooperative game set in the world of the Arkham Horror Files, the Lovecraftian universe developed by Fantasy Flight Games. It's the second edition of the game I'm going to focus on, because that's what took it from something decent to something stupendous. Luckily for me, the first edition was also published in the 2010s, so I don't have to break my own rules just to force in one of the best games ever. Mansions of Madness focuses on a physically small-scale adventure by a group of investigators. Sometimes the location is a literal mansion, but it also might be some streets on a small town, a cavern in the woods, or, depending on which expansions you've added, a lost temple, a mystical lodge, a train, or wilder environments. There is no fixed board, with the game instead starting with only a single tile out on the table. This setup is enabled in a fully cooperative game via integration with an app, which is free but required to play the game. The app tells the players where to place tiles and when the investigators interact with an environment by searching for clues, opening doors, and the like. The app lets the players know what happens. Maybe it hands out more information. Maybe it tells the players to add more tiles to the board. And when it eventually tells the players that creeping horrors from beyond have appeared, The app also tells the players how those monsters move and attack. In this way, the app not only enables a fully cooperative game, but a game with a lot of story. Sometimes the investigators have a pretty good idea what they're getting into. Sometimes they have no earthly clue. But the app lets the details stay hidden from everyone until the investigators stumble upon the necessary information. Don't worry, though. There is a good game under the hood as well. Not just story but an actual good game, which focuses a lot on action efficiency. Mansions of Madness is not one of those co-op games where it's almost inevitable that you win. It's just a question of how close it is. There's a decent chance that you're going to fail the scenario the first time. You're going to have to do some replaying. You can get more efficient the second time. But because of the app, there's always going to be some variance where things are. So you still can't just math out the whole scenario. I have never gotten tired of playing Mansions of Madness, and I am always excited when another expansion comes out, adding more investigators, locations, and creatures to the options that the app can throw at us. And to my mind, Mansions of Madness 2nd Edition is the single best game released in the last 10 years. So there you have it, my top 10 games of the 2010s. You've been listening to Strange Assembly, your tabletop gaming podcast. You can find us on the web at www.strangeassembly.com. You can download additional episodes of the podcast there or from iTunes or whatever your preferred podcatching service is, whatever service you use, but especially if it's iTunes, we always appreciate a rating or review that really helps other people find the show. I always like to hear your thoughts, comments, criticisms, feedback. So you can reach me directly. I'm Chris at strangeassembly.com. You can also find us on the usual social media. We're at strangeassembly on Twitter, facebook.com slash strangeassembly, strangeassembly on Instagram, that sort of thing. But until then, I'm Chris Stevenson, and you've been listening to Strange Assembly. Never stop gaming.